0: Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what
1: you are. We choose to go
0: to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
2: And there it is, the familiar start that tells us we are welcoming Howard Parkin into the studio for the October edition of the Manx Sky at Night. my good evening Howard. my Judith, nice to be here. You've just given me a piece of paper with about twenty-four different topics written on it. Absolutely, so I reckon that we're going to have another fact-packed
1: program. There's just so much going on; I can't keep pace with it myself. It's incredible. Well, this is your very favourite time of the year, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely! It's the best time of the year for astronomy by far because the nice dark nights are here and the winter stars, which are better than any other time of the year, it's just great. And there's so much going on in the news as well. So, well, indeed there is. I'm being more aware of space
2: matters being oh, talked excellent, about. Excellent. I don't think it's because i'm listening out particularly but of course i am but i I think that there's an even more interest it's just as you say the more we know the more we want
1: to know it has become very fashionable astronomy in the last 10 20 years or so it's really become i mean everybody's got to see the northern lights on their list everyone wants to see that i I do these trips as you know and everyone just fascinating they want to know about it and Anything that's slightly out of the ordinary or unusual, they want to know about it. And uh, that's that's basically what we're doing. Well, let's start tonight, Howard, by looking at, close to home, the Manx skies. What do we need to know? Well, lots to look at at the moment because this is the time of the year. In September when the stars start to come out earlier because, of course, it goes dark earlier. We see, for instance, the stars of Ursa Major, the plough, sitting on the northern horizon. And I mention this probably every month we do this programme, but when it sits on the horizon, everyone knows the shape, everyone knows where it is. It then disappears throughout the year as it rotates around the pole, but it's so familiar and everyone knows it. Well, we're not going to look at the northern sky today. We've done that loads of times. We're going to look... Initially, we're going to start looking in the west because if you look in the western sky... After the sky has gone dark, you'll see three bright stars. In fact, as the sky goes dark, these three stars are the first three to come out. And these are the Summer Triangle. Now, we're looking at the Summer Triangle in late autumn. That's because they rise in May on the northeast horizon and slowly track across the sky, and they set in the west, and they're still visible. And at this time of the year, we've got those three stars, a couple of other stars, and that's it. Those are the only bright stars we see in the autumn. But... Wait, around 10 o'clock at night, the eastern horizon, all of a sudden, you get one, then two, then three, and in the end, there's about 15 bright stars all appear in the winter sky, rising in the east, which of course, over the course of the next few months, they'll track across the south and over into the west, and this arrival of the stars of winter is quite exciting and quite dramatic. I spotted, I was up early the other morning, and I spotted the stars of the constellation Orion in the morning sky. Very, very vivid, very easy to spot, but this was four o'clock in the morning. They will, of course, be dominating our sky in late November and December, and of course, January. We'll talk about them as we go through. But there's a lovely tale about one star in particular I just want to tell you about, because we're broadcasting this very close to Halloween, as you know. So, On the 31st of October, there is a star in the sky called Arcturus. Now, I said we weren't going to look at the northern sky, but just to remind you where it is, find the plough and follow the handle of the plough down. It's like a curve. It's a curve, and it's like an arc. And we always say arc to Arcturus. This is the star Arcturus we're looking for. Because on the 31st of October, which I know is literally a few days' time, on the 31st of October arcturus is in the sky exactly at the same place the sun was on midsummer's day and it's called the ghost of the summer sun and that star brilliant star arcturus beautiful one of the brightest stars in the heavens it's right at that position where the sun was in the western sky three months earlier two things it, it's it's a lovely romantic
2: name the ghost of the summer mm. sun
1: isn't it, you know, it but is. isn't it amazing how these things all work out oh yes it's like clockwork it really is the precision with which the planets orbit the stars rotate the earth going I mean everyone knows the stars move across the sky but of course they don't the stars are static and unmoving more or less there's a proviso one that I could talk about another time but basically it's all the it's the earth spinning on its axis and going around the sun that gives us this seasonal variation and this uh, impression of movement so we know to a day what's going to be visible the next time I could do the program now for us for November next year October next year because the stars are religiously in the right place and the right time and so it goes on. And it's all to do with the orbital mechanics of the Earth, which wasn't realized until the the early 17th century when Kepler actually worked out what makes the planets move the way they do. And these were people who did this without calculators and without um, books or anything. They just had their brains and their observations from other people um, from years earlier. But
2: the word is observations, isn't it? Because they must have been able to identify this because, as we've said before, the stars were so key to navigation. Absolutely. I mean, the Summer Triangle,
1: could- we mentioned just before, the Summer Triangle is a very, very important group of stars. It's actually three stars in three different constellations. And those three stars, their position relative to one another, their angle to each other, it enables the Vikings, amongst others, to navigate with those stars with a high degree of precision, which got them across the Atlantic and all those sort of places. And we can work this out. But what always surprises me is you're doing all these observations. And then you think, well, hang on, I can't do it anymore now because those stars are setting in the West. And you have to wait 12 months to do it again. But they eventually learned all the secrets and all these stories and everything else. And it's interesting you use the word observations because I always stress when I do my lectures, observational evidence, that's what it's all about. You see with your eyes and you explain what you see. And that's accepted until someone comes up with an alternative theory, like Copernicus and Kepler mentioned earlier. When these theories come out, well, hang on a minute, that can't be right. So they come up with a different theory, and eventually it's proved right. They're just all mulling round together different ideas. Something will come through, either... They'll dismiss them all and go back to exactly what the Big Bang we think is. Or someone's going to come up with a radical change and a radical difference, which, frankly, I don't think they will because the Big Bang is so well established. But, hey, that's science. That's observational evidence. And the more we observe, the more we find out. Now, Howard, we've been talking about things quite general,
2: but what anything special and specific
1: that we should know about? Well, yes, there is, and November's actually got quite a few exciting things going on for us. Um, The first of those is something that only happens about six or seven times a century, and this is the transit of the planet Mercury. Now, this is a specialist thing to see, and unless you have a special telescope or with filters or anything else, you're not going to be able to see it. Um, Please, nobody should ever look at the sun, because if you do look at the sun from any form of optical aid, you'll blind yourself, and that will never do, obviously. Um, So leave that for the experts, and there'll be all sorts of stories about that on the news, I'm sure, at that time. That's on the 11th of November. But a few days later, we have the Leonid meter shower, and the Leonid meter shower is one of these showers that sometimes is very good, or occasionally is very good, I should say, but usually it's a damp squib. But we always don't know because sometimes the Leonid shower has been dramatic, and um, although we're not expecting anything dramatic this year. It's well worth looking out for because unlike a lot of other meteor showers, these do leave what we call persistent trains. They leave a trail in the sky for a few seconds after, which normally meters you don't see a trail. You see the meteor, and that's it, it's gone. But these do leave a trail, so well worth looking out for um around the fifteenth, sixteenth of November. But then we've got a real special event taking place, a real spectacular event taking place over Peel, where else? <laughs> because at the moment uh, i mentioned about the bright stars appearing and there may be a lot of people realize that on the low on the southwest horizon is the planet jupiter very bright very easy to spot and uh, quite quite uh, exciting to look at but that is slowly making its way towards the western horizon and will disappear into the twilight over the course of the next few months but on the western horizon at the moment, rising into the darker sky, we've got the planet Venus. And Venus and Jupiter are going to meet each other in the sky on the 24th of November. And it will be quite dramatic. You're going to have two very bright objects. The two brightest objects in the sky after the sun and the moon are going to pass each other. we at one and a half degrees apart from one another. Venus will keep rising in the ascending, as it were, and Jupiter will disappear into the into the gloom and the uh, the twilight sky. So quite dramatic. And then, of course, Venus will remain visible for us right through then until about March, April next year and will be a dominant beacon literally in the west. So anyone who's on the island, look towards Peel, or if you're in Peel, look towards Ireland, you can't fail to notice a very bright object, which is Venus, and indeed with Jupiter alongside it uh, on the 24th and for a few days before and after.
2: Are there any conditions that would make that Leonid shower particularly good or or do you just literally have to wait and see what happens? there is a
1: good reason the Leonid shower, all metre showers come from the remnants of a comet, a comet that has gone through the solar system and has left this debris behind it, the comet may still be there even, but the Leonids um, tend to peak every 33 years and the last real peak should have been 1999 but there was a change it was 2002, so we're not really expecting any dramatic activity from the Leonids until 2035, something like that
2: so what with this, with, the, with that potential meteor shower and, and with Venus and Jupiter, something spectacular happening mm. there. It's hardly surprising, is it, Howard, that you wish it was
1: forever autumn. Oh, absolutely right. And what better song to play at this time of the year. One of my favourite artists, the Moody Blues and Justin Haywood. I hope you enjoy it.
0: The summer sun is fading as the year grows old and darker days are drawing near the winter winds will be much colder now you're not here I'll watch the birds fly south Across the autumn sky And one by one they disappear I wish that I was flying with them Now you're not here Like the sun through the trees You came to love me Like a leaf on a breeze now Cause you're not here Cause you're not here The sun through the trees You came to love me Like a leaf on a breeze You blew away Mm -hmm. A gentle rain Softly on my weary eyes as if to hide a lonely tear my life will be forever autumn. Cause you're not here cause you're not here Cause you're not
2: the song that they could very well have written for Howard Parkin, Forever Autumn. And we are talking about the Manx sky at night. As usual, it's Howard Parkin in the studio to guide us through the planets and the stars and to take us now to outer space. Because we always have a little bit of time on this program devoted to space travel, and somebody who is, is quite a hero of yours has passed, passed away recently. Yes, didn't he? he
1: was Alexei Leonov, hero of the Soviet Union, and one of those real characters of the manned spaceflight era back in the sixties. And sadly, he died. He was eighty-seven, I think it was when he died. So he had a good innings. And uh, but he, when I went to Russia last year, I had a holiday in Russia last year. There's three people in the space industry in Russia who were revered by the, by the masses of Russia. That's Yuri Gagarin, um, Valentina Tereshkova and Alexei Leonov. Sadly, um, Gagarin's gone and Leonov's gone now. Valentina Tereshkova's still around. She was at Leonov's funeral. But um, Leonov was a real hero and uh, some of the tales about him are just beyond belief. Back in the 60s, the people
2: who were involved at the at the cutting edge of space exploration. They did have to have a special kind of courage Man. because there was no guarantees. No, absolutely. Not. I mean, it's still dangerous. Oh, it is. No question. But, but fifty years ago, it's even more dangerous. Yeah. It's yes. What are the kind of things that they say about him, Howard?
1: Well, one of the best stories about him is he was one of the original uh, Russian cosmonauts. They call them cosmonauts, not astronauts. But he went out for a spacewalk. He did something unbelievable. The Americans were talking about doing it, but at this particular time in the in the, in the space race, and uh, the Russians seemed to do everything first. And Alexei Leonov. Walk, got out of his spacesuit, got into a special inflatable airlock. and um, You see pictures of it now and you think it's something out of, out of the 50s, not the man in the 60s. And uh, he went out for a walk in space and there's pictures of him doing it. But he did the unthinkable. When he got out, his spacesuit ballooned up. The pressure was too high in it. His feet came out the boots, his hand came out the gloves. And the spacesuit was like the Michelin man. And he couldn't get back in the airlock because the suit was too big so what are they going to do there was all sorts of discussions as to what they can and can't do but he did the unthinkable he let the air out of suit he let the air out of the suit so the suit collapsed sufficiently for him to squeeze himself back in the airlock which he went in head first instead of feet first because obviously the situation was quite dire and uh, almost, uh, I wouldn't say panic because he was such a cool character he eventually got back in the airlock eventually got back inside the spacecraft and he did suffer from decompression sickness or the start of it from letting the, the pressure out so quickly but it was after that or basically die and you know when they came back down to Earth uh, they landed miles away from where they should have landed and they didn't rescue them for three days the whole story of of him and what went on was just incredible but one of the nicest tales about the man himself was he when he came back and he was interviewed he told everybody um a spacewalk was fine i had no difficulty it was a great experience it was wonderful and aren't the soviet union wonderful for letting me do this but he regretted to his dying day that he didn't tell the truth he had an awful problem he very nearly died and the problems of spacewalks were to plague the US as well right through the first walk by um, Ed White in in Gemini 4 just after Leonov and it wasn't until the last Gemini mission when Buzz Aldrin actually got it all sorted out and they managed to sort out how to do it and Leonov said because he got very friendly with the the American astronauts that if only he'd been able to tell the truth that experience would have saved so much more uh, less heartache for everybody just an incredible bloke but how is this for a final story about I could talk about him for hours. Sadly, Soyuz 11 was the first spacecraft to go up to a space station and occupy a space station ever. And the crew of that space station, very sadly, when they came back to Earth, the spacecraft had a problem and they all died on re-entry and the, the, the atmosphere of the spacecraft was vented and they all died, they were all found dead on the ground. Leonov was the commander of that mission. One of his crew, one of the three crew, was taken ill. So they replaced Leonov's crew with the backup crew, and they all died. So what a, what a tale. But he was just a great character, and um, he, had, he, he was a guy who flew in the, um, the what they call the Apollo-Soyuz test project, where they actually docked together Russian and American spacecraft, and that was the precursor of cooperation in space, which has led to the International Space Station. So it was, he was a very clever bloke and a very heroic character. Truly heroic
2: because Definitely. you'd have to have exceptional skills. I'm listening to those stories, very moving stories. Very. And you couldn't really blame him for coming back and saying everything was OK, because that was the climate that he was Absolutely. living in at that time. Was the peak of the Cold War. He would, he would have been driven out of his country, wouldn't mm, he, if he if he'd told the truth? They would have seen it as a, a reflection on their exactly. on, on their abilities, exactly. yeah. wouldn't they? There's a much better climate for complete honesty, and and the best thing is, of course, that we've got, as we've talked about,
1: international cooperation. That's it. I mean, that that came from that Apollo Soyuz test mission. But you know, Leonov was meant to be the first man on the moon. He was the Soviet. Man who was selected to be the first man on the moon, but of course their rocket didn't work, so we never made it. But he was later interviewed some years later. You see, I'm still talking about him. He was interviewed some years later, and he said, um, "This was obviously after the, the wall had gone down and all that." And he says, "I'm glad I didn't go because I don't think the he was up to it." He admitted that he didn't think it was up to it. But this was way, way later. This is about ten years ago. Yes. But he could have been. It could have been Leonov. We were talking about instead of Armstrong. And that's life, isn't it? Absolutely, it isn't isn't a it? Chance remark, chance activities, or whatever.
2: Yeah, it's you know people say, oh, if I'd gone out five minutes earlier, if yeah. I'd stayed home and taken yeah. that phone call, and but
1: that, you just don't know. That's do life. That's exactly. life.
2: Exactly. But um, I think probably one of amongst one of your many gifts, Howard, is the, <laughs> is the gifts of uh, predicting the future, <laughs> because I seem to recall that when we were last together uh, a month ago, you were saying that you suspected the the SpaceX Dragon was going to be. Del- delayed.
1: And guess what? It's been delayed. They've finally admitted it won't launch now to the beginning of 2020. There was a bit of a spat, I'm not sure it was before or after we did our last um, chat, Um, but um, SpaceX, Elon Musk, was crowing about his new Starship they're building and all the rest, and NASA got a bit upset with him because they actually made a comment that um, you should concentrate on getting the dragon working and never mind your space, um, your starship and eventually they made friends again and from that interview that Jim Bridenstine the head of NASA uh, had with Elon Musk, he admitted that um, the original launch or one of the original dates that has been pushed back repeatedly which was for mid-November has now been put back to the beginning of the first quarter of 2020 so when I say the first quarter, don't be looking for it in early January, I reckon we're looking at March probably.
2: yeah. Do you, do you think that is a, a much more logical thing? Oh, I to think stick so. To? I mean, I they think. had
1: problems with the, um, the abort system of this rocket and that's what they've got to test and now they're testing all the parachutes and I think they've got 10 parachute tests to get through before they get that right. But SpaceX, of course, are just one. The other one is Boeing and their Starliner and they're about six months behind SpaceX. They're going to launch in December and I think this one will happen. This is an unmanned launch of the new Starliner spacecraft. It's scheduled at the moment for launch on December 17th. Uh, that might well go back into early January but that's the, their test flight of the unmanned vehicle that'll be all over the news and then SpaceX and uh, Boeing will be ferrying astronauts up and down to the International Space Station hopefully by the end of 2020 that's my prediction end of 2020 if not there'll be big trouble the, the,
2: the race this this kind of race for progress is coming down even now to commercial flights well to commercial flights I haven't researched this story properly but I did see there was something in the news at the weekend about a a test flight going to Australia in a record space of time they were seeing how people coped with it, with
1: it I saw this story myself Qantas flew from New York to Sydney in 19 hours non-stop, the longest... And they're, they're thinking about making it a regular flight, in which case it will be the longest flight you can do. But what they did, interestingly enough, is when they took off from New York, they set the clock to Sydney time, left the lights on for about six hours, and then turned all the lights off and said, right, it's now night time in Australia. And they they changed the lighting, and they served the meals and breakfast and all the rest to try and counter the effects of jet lag, because 19 hours is a long time for a flight. I've never done a flight that long, and I don't know if I'd fancy it, to be honest.
2: Well, I did discover that um, you know how we are always hoping that we're going to get you into space before we finish doing this series of <laughs> programs. Oh, return, not yeah.
1: one way, return, please. Oh, return, but of <laughs> course, but of course, a
2: return for goodness' sake. Well, that's one thing. What I did discover at the weekend that there is no way on earth that I will be ever, ever. Um, suitable for to get behind any kind of plane controls. I was on a flight simulator this weekend. All right, how flight, exciting! Flight simulator. Yeah, crashed the plane four times. How many times did you try it? Four times. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> so yeah, no. I can. I can be part of the ground crew and make tea. I that's an excellent idea. We talked about Unite night school. Uh, that was just yeah. about to start last month. How's it going, Howard? It's going
1: very well. I'm delighted to have about, I think there's 12 in the class this year. They keep coming back. Some of them come back. About well, three of them have come back from previous years. But basically, I do the same sort of stuff I'm doing with you on the radio. we talk about what's visible in the night sky, then we do a bit about the news, and then we'll do a lecture or a talk about a specific topic. For instance, last week we did all about Apollo 11, because it's still the anniversary year, and it's nice to to look back. Because, of course, 50 years ago in November was the launch of the second manned mission to the moon, Apollo 12. And there's a lovely story to finish us off with with that one because Pete Conrad was the chap who was the commander of Apollo 12 and he's only a little guy and uh, he made a $50 bet with somebody that he would say something frivolous when he stepped onto the moon. And he did. When he jumped off the ladder and landed on the moon, he said that might have been a little one for Neil, but it's a big one for a little guy like me and allegedly he never got his $50. Well, now that's a shame. And he's, uh, sadly, he, he, he died. I mean, he was about 80-odd, I think. when He was out on his Harley Davidson, had an accident which shouldn't have led to his death, but there was a problem in the hospital and he didn't get the right treatment or something, and sadly he passed away. And that was Pete Conrad, who was a real, another hero of the, of the era of the 60s and the 70s. And the, there are so many of them, but sadly they're all slowly... Dying off. Well, indeed, because we are talking about achievements of fifty
2: years ago. Of course, we yeah. And also, I think it's in celebrating these anniversaries that we realise how heroic those people Absolutely. were. It's not that we we weren't we weren't impressed with what they were doing. It's just we we now understand more about yeah. the technology of
1: the time and its limitations, it don't we? And indeed, next year we'll have in April we'll have the anniversary of Apollo thirteen. Now that will be a big anniversary as well because that was the one that really did make us realise how dangerous space was how they got those three back is almost beyond belief and of course we've all seen the film apollo 13 i bet it'll be on about 20 times in april next year but uh, that'll be a great story to talk about maybe when we get through to March and April time
2: and the nice thing is that having you to hand we're never short of good stories to talk about always something to talk about Howard thank you very much for joining us tonight to help us look at the October Manx sky at night we look forward to you joining us again at the end of November I look forward to it,
1: Judith thank you very much good night The
0: Nation Station makes great